Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that when we gather in your name and your spirit is among us, we see you, we hear from you, we watch you at work. And I thank you for that, Father, because the world doesn't understand the love and the joy that comes from being a part of something you created in faith. And, and we could be just as ignorant, Father, but for your grace and your mercy. And we have the, the awesome opportunity to be a part of not only a family that loves us and cares for us in the name of Christ, but will be ours for eternity, brothers and sisters in eternity. And we get a little bit of that now, Father. We get a taste of what that will be like. But this is the start of it, and it will never end. And I thank you, Father, for that, that privilege, for a blessing that is uh, without measure. And we want to be ready for that time to serve you better in that day to come in, this, in the kingdom in which your glory is fully revealed as you appear and you rule and reign. And so today, Father, we come as students and, and your children seeking to know more about how to be a child of God, how to be the that representative, that ambassador that honors you. And you'll teach us, Father, in a variety of ways. And I know this morning with Abraham and Lot and others on the pages before us, we'll have an opportunity to see both the good and the bad and to learn in both cases. And so I ask, Father, that you would show us our own faults. You would also give us an understanding of what we should be doing and a model to seek after. And let us have a heart to obey. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We reach a climax of sorts today in the story of Lot. He's at the moment of truth. He's been hesitating. He couldn't persuade anybody in his family. The angels had to step in. They literally had to grab his hands and those of his wife and daughters and drag them out of the city just to make available an opportunity for them. And we observed last week that though they took him out of the city, they didn't actually take him out of harm's way. That's in keeping with what Scripture taught us last week, that God provides a rescue from temptation, not necessarily from physical destruction. God left him, by virtue of these angels, outside the city, away from the temptation, but yet still in the path of the coming destruction. And as Peter taught us last week, that is the Lord's pattern, to remove the temptation, but not to take away our need for obedience. And so Lot sits now outside the city, free from that temptation, with no reason not to leave now, and unfortunately, as we're about to learn now, as we pick up again at about verse 15 or so, his love for the world, for the world he's come to know in Sodom, is still captivating him, clouding his judgment, and operating in his decisions. Look at verse 15. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away in the punishment of the city. But... He hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and they put him outside the city. When they had brought him outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you'll be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Now, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me and I will die. Well, Lot and his family are sitting here in the Fertile Valley, 
Arabah Valley, just outside the city of Sodom. Dawn has arrived, the, the sun's up now, we're told, and the judgment of God is prepared. So we're at that climactic moment where the city's going to meet its fate. Today, the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, and all who dwell there are going to come to an utter, complete destruction. And the destruction here is so complete that even today, archaeologists debate about the exact locations of these cities. So as the angels here prepare to leave Lot, leave his family, go back and do God's work in destroying the city, they give him this command, you've got to escape. They tell him specifically, the entire valley is off limits. You need to go to the mountains. Clearly, we didn't get far enough away from where the destruction is going to land to be safe at this point. They're going to require Lot to take another step. But now that he's been pulled away from all that temptation, it should be a relatively easy thing for him to do. What else is he to stay for at this point? Just looking at a map of the location where he's standing right now, from where he stands, he has two routes of escape. He could take his family and travel west. If he goes west, he's going to end up in the mountains of the Negev Desert. Now, that's actually the logical place to go, because when you think about it, that's where his uncle Abraham is sojourning. Those are the mountains that are going to be familiar ground to him. That's where he used to live. That's old territory for him. More importantly, he'd be rejoining this relative who we already know is wealthy and well-established. It would be the logical place to flee. Go back to your family and stay with him. But he does have another choice. He could go east. And if he goes east from this location, he ends up in the Arabim Mountains, which are a mountain range of southern Jordan. Basra, Petra, that's where you find those towns today. But there's really nothing for him there at all. It's just unfriendly wilderness, strangers, harsh conditions. There's really no reason to go in that direction. Interestingly, though, Lot doesn't choose either one. What he says is, oh, no, my lords, in verse 18, he says, I can't be expected to live in the mountains. In this moment, he's doing something similar to what Abraham did in the prior chapter. He's petitioning, or to put a different word to it, he's praying to God through his messengers here. He begins in verse 19. He makes this appeal to God's character and to his mercy and to his promises. Now, remember, that's what Abraham did as well. When Abraham prayed, his entry point into that conversation was to raise the fact of God's character and nature being such that logically it would lead to certain responses from God because of his nature, because of his character, his loving kindness, his faithfulness, and so on, his perfect justice, that Abraham could expect certain outcomes. And from that basis, he put a petition before the Lord. Similarly, Lot starts in that same vein. He says, you have shown loving kindness to me. That's a term from covenant. That's a covenantial term. It means the kind of faithfulness to promises that only God can give. Perfect faithfulness, in other words. He says, you've shown me loving kindness on the basis of faith, of course. And you're showing yourself true to your promises in the way you rescued me from Sodom. And therefore, he says... I'm going to make this personal appeal. And the personal appeal is, I don't think I can live in the mountains. I need to be somewhere in the city. And he says specifically, the disaster will overtake me. Now, that's a tremendous irony when you consider his current circumstances, right? Angels are telling him to escape the valley in order to live. And his response is, but if I leave the valley, I will die. Now, how can those two statements be reconciled? Because they're obviously contradictory, or so they seem to be. Well, the answer comes in some of the language. The words that the angels used here when they said, Lot, escape for your life. The word life in Hebrew is nefesh, which is often translated just soul, your soul. So the angels say to Lot, you've got to leave this valley 
physically, your body needs to walk away from this valley, if you want to save your soul. The full sense of their command here is not merely preserving your physical life. The angels are telling Lot in saving his soul, you need to act in such a way that you will preserve your eternal reward. Act in such a way to ensure a good testimony for the sake of the day of your judgment. When the word soul is used in Scripture, it can be used in various ways, but in many cases it's used in this kind of a context where it's not salvation that's on the line. We're not talking about the spirit in the sense of whether they end up in heaven or hell. That's not settled by works. That's settled by faith. But they're saying you must do something here to save your soul. Well, what would that mean then if we're not talking about salvation? It's to this issue of your eternal disposition. What you will find in eternity, who you will be in eternity, how you will be evaluated in eternity, the part of you that goes with you into eternity that is determined in this life. We think of it as a testimony, but a testimony before the judgment seat of Christ, not the testimony before men, the one that will determine our eternal reward. And to that measure, the angels say, flee, escape to save your soul. Now, you can see that they mean this when you look at what they say specifically. First, they say, do not look behind you. Well, if the only thing they wanted to save was his physical body, then that instruction wouldn't make a lot of sense. Does it really matter whether he looks behind him or not as he walks out of the valley, if the only point was to save his body? Now, there's something implicit in looking behind, isn't there? The implication is that you're looking back in a longing sense. You miss what you're leaving. You wish you didn't have to leave what you're leaving. It's a spiritual attachment. And the angels are telling Lot, put it behind you in every sense of the word. Next thing they say is don't stay anywhere in the valley. If you look at a map, if you had one in your Bible, or if you look at one perhaps later, this is a large valley. This isn't a small little region. The entire valley was not destroyed by this judgment. The places that we think Sodom and Gomorrah actually occupied are, are a relatively small area. Some believe that they're now covered by the Dead Sea because the Dead Sea has grown in size since the time of this event. But in any case, they're at the very southern tip and the rest of the valley extends for many miles south from there. They would not be saying stay away from the valley if their only concern was your physical body because he could have just traveled a few miles south and stayed in the valley and been fine. Now, the issue is his unwillingness to separate himself from what the valley itself brought to him, the kind of depravity, the kind of compromise that has come out of his association with this place, that's their concern. If he does not leave the valley, he will not only die physically, potentially, if he stays too close to Sodom, but he is more importantly going to find eternal loss. God's concerns, by and large in Scripture, are for your spiritual needs and health, and the physical is just a means to that end. It's never the end concern for God. It's such an irony when you hear a lot say, don't make me leave this world behind and put me out in the mountains where I won't have the things of life that I've learned to enjoy. For if you do that, it'll be a disaster for me. And what the angels are telling them is the real disaster, the eternal disaster is the one happening to you right now because you're in this valley. The angels are speaking of an eternal jeopardy and Lot keeps raising concerns of a physical and material jeopardy. The angels are focused on the eternal. Lot is focused on the temporal. That's the problem with Lot. 
he's revealed his heart here so clearly that it's not a pretty sight. Lot's only focus in life is to maintain a relationship with the physical world that he loves. And it's made him blind to the eternal consequences for his decisions. So he's living for the here and now at the expense of the glory that is to be revealed. I had an experience years ago in a church when there was a missionary who came from India. And I remember this very distinctly. I don't know why it stuck with me. But he had said that one of his primary messages he preaches into a very, very materialistic Indian culture was to have eyes for eternity. And that was his phrase, which I've stolen from him ever since. Eyes for eternity. Which is his way of saying, make every decision in light of how it impacts eternity, and you're more likely to make the right decisions. Paul, in his teaching to the church, in Romans 8.18, he says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And there, of course, he's talking about trials. We will experience them, we'll have to deal with them, but our focus should be on the eternal. In a longer passage out of Philippians, Paul says he joyfully traded a position of prominence and a life of wealth for the chance to glorify God in Christ and for the opportunity to win his approval. Philippians 3, 7 and, and onward, he says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. But more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. And then he makes his last point. He says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I count everything I had in life, his prominence in position and in authority and in fame and in wealth and in all the other things he had because he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He says, I traded that in. I literally gave it up to the world, everything I had, counted as lost, so that I would have, in exchange for that, the value of knowing Christ, but more than that, he says, for the opportunity to pursue a prize. Now, the word prize in this context is not the salvation that he has by faith. You don't earn that. You don't compete for it. It's grace. It's given to you. So that begs the question, what prize is he trying to capture then if he already has salvation? Well, Paul understood, as we need to, that salvation gains us no credit when it comes to our moment of judgment. You know, we're not going to show up at the judgment seat of Christ on the day of our death or at the rapture and and have Christ look at us and say, you know what, Steve, I congratulate you for believing in the gospel. Great job. Here's your reward. You know why he's not going to say that? Because it had nothing to do with me. There was no effort. There wasn't even a conscious mental assent. It came after the fact. We get no credit for what's given to us. The question will be, what did you do once you were believing? What's your testimony of belief? Not how did you become a believer? And Paul says, that's the prize I'm running for. And he says, I traded rubbish. And the word in Greek is very revealing. The literal translation would be dung. 
He says, I traded in that kind of stuff for the opportunity to press on for the goal of the prize, which is found in Christ. The trading in was not to obtain the prize. It's not as though he said, okay, God, here's the deal. I was powerful, rich, famous, prominent in my field, and I had all these worldly things that I went after, but I'm just going to trade them all in for that eternal reward. That's not what it said. He says, I traded it in for the opportunity to press on for the goal of the prize. You see, what he did was he took those things off his plate so that now he could pursue, through the efforts of ministry, the prize. And later in 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul says this, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you will win. So you have to give away all of the stuff that keeps you out of the race before you can run. But the running is where you earn the prize. And this is Lot's problem. Lot wasn't in the race because he was in the race for the world's pleasures and the world's rewards. So he wasn't even competing for the prize. Had he put that aside, now the race could begin for how he could please God and how he could serve the Lord. And in that pursuit, he has the opportunity to, quote, win the prize, whatever that is. Paul's here talking about an internal inheritance that we can earn but doing so in order to glorify the Lord. And he calls us to do the same thing. The writer of Hebrews says that as well. In Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, having just talked about the hall of faith, all those wonderful Old Testament examples of living in faith, he calls upon those and he says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and then let us run with endurance the race that has been set before us. You see the pattern? We've got to lay aside the encumbrance, the weights that are holding us down, and then we can start to run. Sadly, Lot takes a different path. Look at verse 20. Now behold, he says, this town, this, this town, it, it's near enough to flee to, and it's small. Please, let me escape there. Is it not small that my life might be saved? And he said to them, behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you've spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Well, Lot here suggests in that moment of prayer, of petition, that he could find a comfortable, safe existence in Zoar, a nearby town. Now, the name Zoar is not spoken commonly in the same sentence as Sodom and Gomorrah, but it could have been. It's one of these five cities that were in close proximity in the valley, and we have every reason to believe those five cities shared a lot of the same sinful practices, though it seems Sodom and Gomorrah may have taken them to a new level, which is why they're immortalized in Scripture. Remember back in chapter 14? When we had the kings of the north that invaded and came to put down the rebellion, they came in to fight the five kings of the south. Well, those five kings were from these five cities. So Lot asks, can I remain attached to one of these places? How about Zoar? It's the smallest one. It's a little place. Lot won't separate himself. This is a man who's a carnal believer, one that's stuck in this world, though he has faith and is saved as a result. And in typical fashion, he does something I find a lot of unbelievers or a lot of carnal believers will do when they're confronted with their sin. 
They minimize the impact of the compromise. Notice in verse 20, he says, it's a small town. Physically, it's small. Who cares? What difference does that make? In the context of what's being discussed here, the size of the city is completely irrelevant to the issue at hand, right? But it's important for him because it seems to make the case that it's not going to matter that much. It's not too much to ask. It's not really that much of a risk. I mean, compared to Sodom, after all, how bad could it be to live in this little place? It's rationalization. He minimizes the significance of sin. The natural first response of the flesh, when faced with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, is to minimize the sin, to excuse it off. You remember Abraham's prayer? When he wanted God to do something for him, here's what Abraham's prayer did. It minimized the number of righteous required to ensure God's rescue for his believing nephew. He got down to ten. He minimized how many righteous had to be found so that God would do something for the sake of the believer. Lot, on the other end, has been minimizing the sin of an unrighteous city and in his own life so that he could maintain a disobedient lifestyle. Abraham sought to magnify God's glory by seeking a righteous outcome through his prayer. Lot seeks to magnify his earthly pleasure by seeking a selfish outcome. Now, if we were to look at these two examples and not be counseled fully on what Scripture has to say about them, we might be tempted to conclude, well, clearly God will answer yes to Abraham and answer no to Lot, because Abraham's prayer comes from the right heart and Lot's prayer comes from the wrong heart. And there's some truth to that. Generally, I think that is how God works, but not always. What do you think God will do with a child like Lot under these circumstances? Well, he could reject Lot's request, obviously. He could say no. And in fact, he could just do what he's been doing all along. He could grab his hands and say, look, you're not getting it, buddy. You've got to get out of here and just drag him to the mountains. He could just do that. He's already taken him out of the city. But if he did that, if he forced Lot to move to the mountains, when it's clearly not in Lot's heart to want to do that on his own, he's not solving the problem. And the problem is Lot's heart. Lot's heart is set against the will of God. How do you deal with that in a child? I mean, as a parent, how would you deal with that with a child? A parent who has a child whose heart is set against their authority. In God's case, he's entered into this relationship with men, with women, so that he can glorify himself. And in the case of the family, the instructions from God to the children are honor your mother and father. So in a similar sense, the obedience of the child is a reflection on their honoring or not honoring their parents. And in God's case, he intends to make our lives a witness to him, does he not? Is that not the reason why he enters into covenant with men is so that they may reflect glory on him through that relationship? Well, when he encounters a child like that, one who is not living in a way that glorifies him, he can do it in one of two ways. He can either use our life of obedience to glorify him, or he can use this as a negative example and let our disobedience become a witness against sin also for his glory. Well, in this case, that's what he chooses to do with Lot. It's a sobering thought to consider that the Lord of heaven, who hears our prayers and knows us as a child, will sometimes let us get what we want because it's the best way to discipline us for our mistakes. Not every door God opens for us is intended to delight us. Some are intended to show us the error of our ways. Each time God is opening doors for us, 
we still have the chance to choose to be a witness of obedience or to be what I like to think of as a car wreck on the side of the road that others will slow down and take a look at and learn from. There are a lot of people, a lot of Christians, carnal Christians, whose lives are train wrecks or car wrecks so that others will look upon them and say, there but for the grace of God go I. Now that doesn't mean those lives are irretrievable. We're not saying that because somebody has a bad day or week or year or whatever that God's done with them. That's not true. He is faithful even when we are faithless. But it does explain why, in some cases, believers lead lives that just don't look much like believers. Because God's not intent on protecting us from ourselves indefinitely. He's intent on conforming us to the likeness of Christ one way or the other for his glory. So the angels here grant Lot's request. And maybe we should ask the same question that we asked back when Abraham saw his prayers answered. We should ask, did Lot change God's mind? Was Zoar on the destruction list before this request and now he changed his mind about Zoar? You could come to that conclusion based on the way the story is told, but I think the ultimate answer is the same. No, it's not that God had a different thought as a result of this prayer. God revealed to Abraham back in chapter 18 that the two cities on his destruction list were Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's extended that destruction throughout the valley, but he never, it appears, never intended to destroy Zoar because the angels accept this request without having to say, I need to ask the Lord first if this is permissible. They seem to know this is an acceptable path right from the start. Perhaps they have that knowledge without having to ask, I don't know, but... Based on the general testimony of Scripture, I have to conclude God had this in hand before it was ever asked. So when Lot asks to flee there, the angels agree, and they remind him there is a coming judgment, and we won't start the judgment until you're safe in that city, which to me is a reminder that their ultimate mission in all of this activity was to preserve a righteous man from the coming judgment. And then the new day begins. God rains judgment down. The exact manner here, it's a mystery for the most part. And it should be, because it's a supernatural event. I think there are some good intentioned efforts in the commentaries you'll find around this moment that look to find natural explanations. They'll talk about volcanoes and hailstorms from meteorites and whatever. I guess that could be the way it was done, but why do we have to run to a natural result for something that is obviously a supernatural event? The logical explanation, the most parsimonious interpretation is God did this because it says fire came out of heaven and brimstone. Well, we can understand what fire is in the sense of what it is, but I don't understand how it comes out of heaven. That's clearly supernatural. And then brimstone, you know, that's an unknown word in Hebrew. We don't even know what the word means. If you go look it up in a Hebrew concordance or dictionary, it's translated brimstone. Well, it doesn't help me. Well, of course, we don't know what the word is. Actually, the root word is gopher which goes back to Noah's story where he builds the ark out of gopher wood. Remember then we said we don't know what gopher wood is either. It's just an unknown Hebrew word. What we know is it's not good. I mean, do we need to know more? When it falls, it it does bad things to you. So it destroyed the cities to a point where they're literally wiped off the map. I told you earlier, archaeologists really can't find these cities any longer. They do see evidence, though, of five settlements in the southern region of the Dead Sea, ancient settlements, that were suddenly wiped out. There's bits and pieces of things that they can find that tell them there was a lot going on here, but in some unexplained way, it all just stopped. The only place that's still inhabited today of those five is Zoar. And the cities appear to have been so prosperous in their day that they found tombs. This is where people were buried before the destruction, back in the normal day life of the towns. They estimate over a million skeletons 
in these tombs. That's a big city. It's a big, prosperous city. If you've been imagining Sodom as some little outpost in the middle of nowhere or something like that, you have to reset. In one little spot, one little area of the south of the Dead Sea, there are rock formations that you don't find anywhere else in that region. The geology of these rocks is very unique. There's high sulfur content, so high, in fact, that they can be lit with a match and they burn. Interesting. Could be brimstone. The message, though, is clear. God will judge sin utterly and completely. And in this day, he did it in a limited way, a limited scope, a limited time. He only did it for a moment. But it's obviously a picture of what's coming for the world as a whole and for an eternity. And he wants the world to learn a lesson from it. Peter says that himself. Second Peter 2, 6. He said, if God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. His point is so that the world will reflect on this moment and say, you know, I can't live in sin indefinitely without expecting God to respond. Whether he'll do it in the physical world or whether he'll just wait and bring it to me in my eternal judgment. Either way or both, he's going to do it. Lot's story, the man Lot, he is the Bible's example for what a believer will experience as he walks in the ways of the Lord. Particularly as a husband and as a father, he and his family here have begun to move toward Zoar. But look what happens as he does that. His influence, Lot's influence as a worldly carnal saint, Old Testament saint, who walks outside the counsel of God's will. Look at the full circle coming back to Hit home, verse 26. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. It's interesting to me that Lot's wife is unnamed in Scripture. She's never named. We just know she was his wife. But her example lives on. She must have been taken from among the Sodomites. We don't have any record of him being married before he walked into Sodom. It's a logical thing to conclude he married a local girl. So this is her hometown. This is the only place she's probably ever known. But her union with Lot should have resulted in some understanding, some better understanding about who the true living God was, what his expectations were. I mean, we would hope to think that he would have brought her into faith or, or at least preached that message to her in some way. But now it would appear that she left that city with Lot, but didn't have the faith that Lot had. Because in the moment when she was tested with regard to that faith, she failed the test and her true heart was revealed. Jesus tells us that's the perspective to take with respect to Lot's wife, because he uses her as an example in the Gospels. When he's teaching the disciples about the power of God's judgment to separate the believer from the unbeliever, the wheat from the chaff, so to speak, he mentions her. In Luke, Luke 17, verse 26, he says, in speaking about that coming day of, of judgment when the believer and the unbeliever will be separated, he says, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given into marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying and selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out 
from Sodom. It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house should not go down in to take them out. Likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Jesus says, remember her. He doesn't even give her name. Remember her as an example. The woman attached to Lot by marriage and by that relationship, presumably she would have been in agreement with the faith in God's promises. But Jesus tells us, no, remember her as an example of the lost. Of the one who's separated in the moment of the judgment that she was seeking to save her physical life, her looking back was that moment of testing, that moment in which we could see her heart revealed perfectly. She cared more for what she was leaving than for following where God was delivering him. And in that choice, she revealed that she did not trust in the Lord or his promises. She was an unbeliever who lived for the world only. Now, if we didn't have Jesus' commentary, we might sit here and have a good debate over whether that means she was an unbeliever or not. But for the way he used the example, we, we have no doubt. Jesus said in Luke 9:62, No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. He's speaking here not about someone who has a day of sin like Lot or a person whose life turns to the, to the carnal, but for someone who fundamentally finds their hope in this world versus the one who's rested in the promises of God. So why does God turn it to salt? It's kind of an interesting response, isn't it? Salt? And yes, that's a literal description. I see no reason in Scripture to turn it to anything else. One moment she's flesh and blood, next minute she's a pillar of salt. Standing in the middle of the desert. Well, you may know this, but the Bible uses salt as a metaphor for spiritual witness in the world. Jesus, very famously in the, in the discourse in Matthew and the Beatitudes, he says in Matthew 5.13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You know, salt in cooking is simply a seasoning that, that sharpens flavor. It makes it more distinctive. It brings it out. And salt is also, though, in the ancient world, and still today in some cases, a preservative and a fertilizer. It had all those uses. And they all have a spiritual dimension to them. We, as believers in the world, we are like salt in the sense that we draw a distinction between God and the world. We're the witness to what God is saying in contrast to what the world itself believes. We stand apart from the world to show God's truth. That's our distinction. That's our saltiness in the world. But we are also a preservative in the way salt is a preservative. In the sense that we are the remnant, we preserve God's promises during this time, during the church age. We are the continuing line of believers. And then finally, we are a fertilizer in a sense, not in the sense of the earlier word, but in the sense that God is at work through us to plant his word in the hearts of men. And we are there to help disciple, to grow that faith. That's our fertilizing effect, to use the full analogy. But think about it. If we don't maintain our saltiness, as Jesus said, if we're the lots of the world, if we're the ones who can't be distinguished from the rest of the world, then where is that salty effect going to come from? I tell people this quite commonly when I'm talking to them about how they can better serve the Lord or how they can better witness to their to their faith. I ask them, if I were to go to any of the communities in which you live and go to school or work or wherever you go in your life, and I were to ask some of the people who know you, if you're a Christian, would they know? You know, sometimes we say yes, sometimes we say no. 
What I commonly hear is, well, Steve, you know, at the place where I work, you really don't want to talk about that. People don't like to hear that. Well, of course they don't like to hear that. That's the whole point. They're supposed to hear it because they don't like it. And in that conviction might come an opportunity for the gospel to be heard. But the point is, if you're not standing out in a way that people can make that distinction, there's very little hope that you'll salt them in the way God is intending. And he may use somebody else, but it's to our benefit to be the one God uses. We can stand as a witness by how we live our life. Or, as in the case with Lot's wife, we can be a witness in how he ends our life. Lot's wife here, she wasn't a believer. She wasn't a witness to the truth. She didn't know the living God. But he still used her as a witness evermore in her disobedience and death. And I think the reason she's not named is because what we're not supposed to remember is who she was, but what she was. We, on the other hand, should be remembered for who we are in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that all that we've learned in the weeks we've studied Lot and in the final week to come will grab our attention wherever you choose to use it. That somewhere in the daily life that we lead as we make decisions and choose to do things in certain ways, live in certain ways, that we'll be mindful as we see where we echo what Lot does, where we follow in his steps or where we could be doing better. That Lot will be on our mind in the way it was intended as an example, Father, of how someone may be called into faith but never put it to good use. And though I know, Father, in my own life and in many others in this room, there is a good effort underway. There is a race being run that we are endeavoring to seek to please you in one way or another. We also know, Father, that like any athlete, there's always ways to improve and there's always ways to seek for a better performance. We do all things in the power that you give us, all things through Christ. And yet, Father, you call us to hear you and yield to you and follow you and depend upon you. And so it's probably the case, Father, that where we fall short in our race, we're we're not doing those things. I pray you impress upon our hearts where we could be better followers and listeners and, and which, Father, we can do things the way you would call us to do. You've given us, Father, the blessing of a small church with a lot of loving people who know you and care about serving those in the body of Christ. And that's such a, an advantage in our race. Let us take advantage of it. Let us seek out relationships and counsel from those in here that you've sent us. Give us a heart to... Be attentive in your word and to be a student that never stops learning. All of these things, Father, help us, and we know that. I, will, I thank you, Father, that you've given us leaders and given us servants who would help us in that regard. Send us more if that's your will. Help us to serve more and to receive more. Let us be a glory in this place for your sake. Let us be salt. I pray these things, Father, trusting you will deliver us from the wrath that is to come and that we will enter into your glory soon. I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.